We are looking at Jesus and neighbors, how he treated his neighbors, especially during the last few weeks leading up to the cross. And tonight we have an interesting passage. It's from John's Gospel, chapter 18. And we're going to look at the first 12 verses. And we're going to look at this story of Jesus' arrests and see if we can find any neighbors in the midst of this. And if so, how did Jesus treat them? Uh, So we're looking at John chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. Then when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with the disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jewish people arrested Jesus and bound him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a Savior who has all power and all authority and yet in this moment, allows himself to come under the power of men. He did it for a very good reason, the best of reasons. And I pray that you'll open our eyes and hearts as we look at this amazing passage of Scripture in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus gave mankind two commandments, two great commandments. The first is that we love God with our whole heart. And the second commandment is that we love our neighbor as ourself. If you look at the Ten Commandments, they're broken down into into those two. Loving God and loving our neighbor. Everything Jesus taught um, comes underneath those two categories. However, since God is creator... You know, we love him by worship. We love him by, through the gospel. But because he's God, he doesn't need anything. Have you ever tried to buy a birthday gift for someone who pretty much has almost everything? Um, so, Jesus, so God says to us, 
in essence, in this second commandment, whatever you would spend on me, spend on them. He says, show your love for me by loving them. John understood this. And in his uh, letter, John says that, how can we say we love God if we don't love people? If we've seen the people, how can we not love them if he's commanded and called us to do it? Think what would happen if every professing Christian tomorrow morning woke up and said, you know, I am going to do everything I can for the rest of my life to love my neighbor as myself. How many of the problems in the United States of America do you think would begin to dissipate? The political divide, uh, the ethnic and racial um, injustice, and we could go on. Now, it might be easy to love a wonderful neighbor if you are so fortunate as to get a wonderful neighbor. We have wonderful neighbors where we live right now, by the way. We just absolutely love them. It'd be more difficult to love a difficult neighbor, but it's quite possible. But what about the worst kind of neighbor? One who would betray you, be your enemy, abandon, denounce you. A neighbor who would work very hard to see you arrested and executed. Would you even consider such a person your neighbor? Well, I want to submit to you that in those categories, Jesus is surrounded by those very people in the scene in the garden. I've titled this message, Jesus and Neighbors. The who, the how, and the what. And I've titled it that because I want us to see who Jesus in this scene considered his neighbors, how Jesus loved his neighbors, and then what is his message to us? Okay, first, who did Jesus consider his neighbors in this scene? We, we know the story here. We just read it. Uh, Jesus goes outside the city into the Garden of Gethsemane. It could have been walled. It was a specific place because they entered it. Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and officers and chief priests, and we know that Malchus was with them, who was the servant of Caiaphas, the high priest. So here's the participants. Here's the actors in the scene. The disciples, Jesus' brothers, Judas, his betrayer, and the band of soldiers and officers, the belligerents. This is who Jesus has to work with. Now, to understand who he might choose and consider to be his neighbor, we need to look at Luke 10 and see Jesus' own criteria for what a neighbor really is. He had just enunciated those two great commands that I mentioned. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. And there was a lawyer, not like one of our lawyers today, um, but a, uh, a lawyer who was an expert in Jewish religious law. And so he, seeking to justify himself, Luke writes, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Boy, that's, that's true lawyer speak right there, guys. Uh, about 14 lawyer jokes just came to my mind, but we we're, we're going to keep moving. <laughs> who is my neighbor? I mean, you can find all sorts of reasons to discount people as our neighbor. Jesus responds with the parable of the Samaritan. You remember the story, a 
traveler, a Jewish man presumably, is traveling along. He is waylaid by robbers, left in a ditch, bleeding and unable to move and take care of himself. A priest walks by. He happens by and he sees the man and he gets on the other side of the road and he walks past. Something else was more important than the second commandment from the Son of God. The second commandment from the God of Israel. You'd think a lawyer, you would think that uh, um, a lawyer at least would know this. Second person passes by, a Levite who is a teacher of the law in Israel. He sees him. He doesn't remember the commandment you know, to love the Lord and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summation of the Old Testament Ten Commandments. Finally, a Samaritan comes by, and it's, it's significant that it's a Samaritan. Because at that time in the first century, the Jewish people despised Samaritans for the most part. Why? They considered them racially mixed, and they considered the religion uh, cultic or, or in deep error. And so they despised them on two levels. They didn't like them. Uh, either racially or religiously. And so Jesus uses a Samaritan as an example, and he stops. You remember the story. He loves this man. He takes care of him. He takes him to an end, and he says, he pays for everything, and he says, and if there's any other charges, put it on my account. I will pay for it. So he says to the lawyer when he finishes the story and says, oh, so which of these three men, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, was a neighbor to the man? And... The lawyer, who had just been caught, said, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, he just said that to every one of us, too. <laughs> Not just the lawyer. Jesus gives his commands in his gospel in a homespun way. But, friends, everything he says is absolutely important, vital, and it should resound above every other thing that we believe or embrace. So his parable shows us this. First of all, our neighbors are chosen by providence. They're chosen by what we call happenstance, but we don't choose them. Secondly, a neighbor is anyone who needs our mercy. And three, we only fulfill our comm his command to be a neighbor when we love our neighbor and show it in a practical way. In other words, Jesus' definition is anyone who needs mercy that we come into contact with is our neighbor. Paul agrees with this in Colossians 4, 6. He says, let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer with each person. And that's precisely what we see in the garden. Look at how Jesus treats these people. We'll see that in just a moment. Who does he choose as his neighbor? In the midst of the last 24 hours before he's tortured, crucified, um, I read about a chaplain who's walked to the execution with over 300 condemned men. And the last hours of their life, the last days, is just self-absorption. Here we find the Son of God looking and loving everyone around him, giving them every chance to repent. So who does he choose? Every person there. I'm gonna, I think I can prove that in a moment. He chooses the disciples who slept during his hour of agony. He chooses Judas, who betrays him with the most insincere kiss in history. <laughs> and he chooses the soldiers and the officers, and yes, Malchus, a servant who was there because he had to be. 
He speaks carefully, kindly, with tender mercy toward each one. I'd never had a surgery in my life until 2008. I was 57. You can do the math. You can tell how old I am. I've had four surgeries since. Fun. Yippee. (laughs) My last one was, oh, praise the Lord. But one thing I learned is, you know, you see a lot of the surgeon during that time. Uh, You see him before. He's very attentive. I don't think I've seen any of my surgeons since. Um, And he comes and visits you every day until you're out of the hospital. He doesn't walk in there, and he's not shocked when he walks in and sees a person in a bed looking, you know, terrible, in a funny-looking little whatever they call that. It's not a gown. It's, it's humility. <laughs> it is humility. And he, he doesn't walk in and think, oh, my God, what happened to you? Oh, you know, he he knows you're sick. He knows you're injured. He knows you're recovering. Yet we as Christians walk out the door every day and are shocked to find that sinners are in need of mercy. We we meet people and say, oh, this guy is definitely not my neighbor. No. I'm not going to tend to that. Christ teaches us to expect every neighbor we meet Or every person we meet is a neighbor, not a potential neighbor, a neighbor who needs our mercy. He didn't size people up and determine which he was going to love. He loved all of them and he laid down his life. Secondly, we've looked at who he considered neighbors, everyone. And now let's turn to how he loves his neighbors. Well, look at how this scene unfolds. The first thing that happens that that really interests me is the fact that Jesus does not destroy the arresting party. He doesn't destroy them. Notice he, when they said, who, uh, they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am he. And what do they do? They fall back, or they draw back and fall to the ground. Now, I don't know how, I don't know what happened. I don't know if the, some sort of power force came out from Jesus or if it was just the power of the word. But I, don't, I know this, that when I am says I am to a group of angry people, they get humble really fast. And so uh, it really harkens back to, to 2 Kings chapter 1, where a king, a very arrogant king, send a ba- sent a band of 50 soldiers and their captain to arrest It was Elijah, correct? Uh, Elijah. And so they come and they say, hey, you know, in a very arrogant way, come down here. And Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, said, oh, man of God, come down here. He says, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you. Suddenly, Elijah was alone. Except for some ashes. It was the first cremation in uh, history. Um. Mass. <laughs> Second 50 comes, same scene, same thing happens. Third 50 comes, and this captain says, oh, man of God. You know, when we try to approach a holy God in our arrogance, he's a fire. He doesn't have to say, I'm going to burn you up. You just come into his presence, and you get burned up. Uh, Aaron's sons found that out. I'm afraid if we read the news about our Christian brothers and sisters, there are many public ministers finding that out every year. 
Secondly, so he doesn't destroy them. Secondly, he, his treatment of Judas. He says this to Judas. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Notice, he doesn't rail. He's being betrayed. He doesn't rail. He doesn't threaten. He shows mercy. He's gentle. He's deeply rebuking him, but doing it in a gentle way. How we treat our enemies is so important. If we want the Holy Spirit with us, and if we want to, be, uh, to have God's blessing, and, and if we want to win this world, we should never approve of teachers, entertainers, political pundits, politicians, or any other officials or figures, whether public or private, when they openly engage in slander, railing, and mocking of other people. If you're listening to shows and watching shows where people do that constantly, cut it out. They're talking about your neighbor. I was in a private conversation, having lunch, a fellow minister, a few fellow ministers uh, some years ago, and one of them spoke for the president, and he called him, I won't tell you which president, but he called him a scumbag. I said, oh. I said, wait a minute, you can't talk about a leader that way. The Old Testament law says you shall not talk uh, bad about a leader. And so he said, well, he, he said, he's not my president. I said, did you renounce your citizenship? Are you not a Christian? We wonder why there's no awakening and revival in America. Praise the Lord. Three, he protected his own. We saw that. The reason for the guys falling down is right here. So Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. They're, they're going like this at this point. He said it again. <laughs> so if you seek me, let these men go. This, verse 9, was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. You know what this is, though, guys? There's, a, there's something else here. There's, this is a picture. Let's zoom out about three or 4,000 feet here. And all of mankind. And there's the demonic power. There's the great Satan himself. And Jesus and he are talking. And Jesus says, take me and let them all go. And that's exactly what he did. Take me. Let them go. And he hasn't lost one. Four, he gently rebukes Peter. And we get on Peter a lot. A lot of us are going to have, a, have to apologize to Peter a lot when we get to the kingdom. Peter's going to go, hey, listen. Uh, that sermon, you, wow, my ears were burning. So he cuts off Malchus's ear. We know the story, but uh, Jesus, in this case, he doesn't say, you idiot, I've been, teach I've been telling you for weeks and months this was going to happen. I've told you I was going to. Who, I'm giving up on you. I've had it. He doesn't do this. He just simply says to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. It's the, the, just the brevity of those words. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? Correction is always hopeful. If God is correcting you or a friend is correcting you, that means there's a future. If God quits correcting you, you're in trouble. It, you, don't complain about being corrected. That means God loves you and is working on you. That means you got hope. He wants you to be better tomorrow than you are today. Lastly, he heals Malchus. 
Uh, Jesus said, no more of this. This is from Luke's gospel, 22. Jesus said, no more of this to Peter. Put your, sheath, put your sword back in its sheath, your little sword. <laughs> and he touched Malchus's ear and heals him. Now, this arresting party at this point in time are probably going, what in the world are we doing? This guy just put an ear back on somebody's head. <laughs> I bet it was, uh, who knows, who knows. Um, now, I'm going to, instead of giving an application here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some, some things from Matthew 5. Because Matthew 5 is the sermon where Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says some other things there that should be really challenging to us. In the same sermon, he says this, I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's get back to John 3.16. Let's get back there real quick, right? Now, Jesus is not saying that by your righteousness, you somehow work your way into the kingdom of God or you somehow work your way into his good grace. But what he's saying, he is, he's rebuking externalism. The scribes and the Pharisees were basically keeping the law on the outside, but their hearts were not holy. They were, they were finding ways and loopholes where they could keep the law on the outward, but they still had their lust and they still had all of their materialism. They still had all their pride and all of their love of, of positions and whatnot. And so, um, I lost my place. I think I knocked my page off. Matthew chapter 5, right? And so, um, we think that confession alone is all we need. We just confess Jesus, we believe the right stuff, and hate the right guys. You know, there was a song once that says, uh, you know, I hate the right politicians, the same ones as you. Christians, this is it. This is, you know, got a right. Got, people start asking you real quick about things because they want to know that you despise the same people. Confession alone. Jesus said this, let your light shine. And throughout this whole Matthew 5, what's he saying? Let your light shine. Is he saying just your words? He's saying loving your neighbor, loving even your enemies. He then goes on to say, you have to be perfect. And that word there means complete. But he says, as your heavenly father is, he says, you want to be like your father. And friends, as we get this gospel in our heart, the more broken we are about our own sin, the less angry we are about other people's sin, the more loving and merciful we, we, we become, the less externalism that we have, the more internalism we have. And so we begin to be like our Heavenly Father. We begin to act like our Heavenly Father. And our light shines and the world begins to experience more of the kingdom. Okay, third, who Jesus considered neighbors, how he loved them, what is his message to us, and it's about to get worse for us, <laughs> our relative righteousness. What is his message to us? One, God chooses our neighbors. It's like family. We only have one choice in the matter. Are we going to obey his commandment or not? He chooses the people we meet. I'm not responsible for the people 3,000 miles away or 5,000 miles in another country. I've never met them. But I am responsible for the person I meet down the street, next door, in the store, online, 
There's still people up there online. You know that, don't you? Secondly, everyone we meet is our neighbor. Even people who post things I don't like. People whose sins I don't like. People from other ethnicities, etc. They're still my neighbor. If I show them mercy on a practical way. Number three, loving neighbors does not mean approval. Jesus despises what Judas is doing, but he loves him as his neighbor and speaks gently. It's like good manners. We treat people with good manners all the time. Thank you. I really appreciate that. You're welcome. We don't say, tell me what you believe before I'm nice to you. Oh, you're that. Well, I take my thank you back. When we love people, we're not approving of of their behavior, their beliefs, or anything else. We are approving that we love God and that we recognize that they've been made in his image. Number four, we're not to attack Jesus' enemies. We're to preach the gospel and reason with people, and we're to uh, defend the gospel. Yes, yes, yes. But we're not to attack Jesus' enemies. Peter did not help anything at that point. He got in Jesus' way. He destroyed his own witness, almost got him hung in the courtyard later on because they said, "Ah, I think you were there. When we wound people that Jesus is seeking to win, we get in the way. Lastly, loving our neighbors is not a weakness. Loving our neighbors is not weak. Uh, We tend to look at Jesus' commandments there in Matthew 5, and we, we tend to treat the Beatitudes and these commandments that are so severe, seemingly, as if they're just poetry. Yeah, I know I should love my neighbor. Oh, love your neighbor. No, they're commands. (laughs) And they are doable if we have a new heart and we understand how much we've been forgiven. And so, I'm going to skip this illustration, but if you watch a glacier, you're not seeing much. You don't look at a glacier and go, whoa, look at the power. Have you ever seen power like that? It's amazing. But a half a meter a year, that glacier is moving more earth than thousands of earth movers. It picks up many tons of rock, rocks that are many tons, and just pulls them. it's, It's amazing. We tend to look at the superficial and say, oh, that's powerful. Wow. There was only one power in that garden. It was Jesus Christ. But the guy had the little bit bigger sword and a little helmet. And we go, oh, there's power. No. Oh, he's, he's a senator. He's the president. He's, he's important. He's got a million dollars. Well, here's the son of God who is ruler over all the cosmos. What are you going to choose? We need to give up our celebrity love and our idolatry. Amen. Praise the Lord. So where do you see yourself in this story? When we read Bible stories, usually we put ourselves in the, in the seat of the good guys. Uh, there's no good guys in this story. Peter's about the best there is. You can complain about Peter denying Jesus at the courtyard, but he was at the courtyard. Actually, John was there too, probably. We, we believe it was John. And 
but we don't know what he was up to. He may have been hiding behind the tree. We don't know, but he was there. Actually, he wasn't hiding. He got Peter in. So where are we in this scene? In our lifetimes, we've played practically every role. Like Malchus and the soldiers, we've followed the crowd. We've compromised for self-promotion, haven't we? Like the disciples, we've neglected Jesus and gone to sleep when he's asked us to be with him. Like Peter, we've hindered Jesus' work. Perhaps those of us today are more like Peter. Why? Well, Peter had a very high view of himself. He says to Jesus, now look, you're saying that people are going to, that we're going to fall away. Listen, I'll die with you. Listen, if everybody in this room, John, James, all these guys, if they die, if they uh, run, I'm not going to. There we are. We have a much higher view of our Christianity than, than the reality. Peter sees the problem as simple. The solution is superficial. Elevate Jesus, overthrow Rome. He believes Jesus is a little naive, but he thinks he can win the day with his little sword. And so like Peter, we think the problem is small. The solution is easy. It's them. It's that political group. It's that ethnic group. It's that gender. It's that behavior. We paint people something other than our neighbors, and it makes it easy to walk by on the other side. Like Peter, we, we, we come up with superficial answers. We have answers that shuts other people down and shuts them up. We can solve complex, multi-generational problems in 140 characters or less. So we slash Malchus with our little Twitter sword. We cut others off with our Facebook daggers. Jesus commands... They're too naive, too impractical. You can't be in politics and not be ugly and not be mean. Well, I beg to differ. I'd rather lose the election than to get down and wallow with the pigs. I'd rather lose the election than to lose my fellowship with Jesus Christ. So Peter says, when Peter says, no, no, Lord. Jesus says, look, the problem is not easy. It's not simple. It's so severe. I'm going to die. I'm going to have to bleed for it. We say, no, 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 no. It's not the gospel. We don't need the gospel. It's not the gospel that's going to solve America. It's not the gospel. It's not a bleeding savior. And Jesus rebukes us just like he did Peter. He says, how then should the scripture be fulfilled? And he says, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but things of men. I want to close with this, the ugly secret of the gospel. Here's the ugly secret. The problem isn't simple. It's not superficial. It's profound. It's serious. And Jesus wasn't crucified because of Rome. He wasn't crucified because of Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders. The world isn't lost simply because of left or right. Paul wrote, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. And he says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see it? 
what put Jesus on the cross? Not the lost. Not those who, not Judas, but the people he died for. You and me. And that, those names there, we were weak, we were ungodly, we were sinners. Now, if we start there, how can we not love our neighbors as ourselves? <laughs> I'm going to end with this story. Dr. Tim Keller has pastored for many, many years. He's retired from pastoring, even though he still oversees a great many works. But he pastored in um, uh, West Manhattan. And Debbie and I were actually able to go to the church and... Uh, he began to notice a woman uh, at one point who would slip out at the end of the service every week and a smartly dressed, obviously very intelligent woman. Somehow he was able to have a conversation with her and he asked her about why she was visiting and where she was from. And she said, I'm not sure I even believe what you all are teaching. He said, well, how, how did you come to the church? She said, well, I work for a, one of the major networks and I made a mistake in my career. It was a career ending mistake. I should have been fired. But she said, something happened. My boss stepped forward, and he took the blame, and he said, I, I should have done a better job at preparing her and training her, and it's my fault. She couldn't believe it. She knew she was going to be fired. She finally had a moment where she was with him in his office, and she began to press him why he had done this. She says, I've had bosses who took credit for my ideas, who took credit for my work, but I've never had one do this. She kept pressing him, and he's a New Yorker, and it's New York. You can get sued for such things. And so he says, okay, I'm going to tell you, but you have to remember, you made me. You made me tell you. He said, my entire life revolves around a man who took the blame for me. If we believe this, then it's easy to love our neighbor as ourselves. Father, in Jesus' name, Open up our hearts. Bring the American church back to the gospel. Let us repent of moralism and idolatry and turn to you. If you've never had a spiritual beginning, now is the time for you to give your life to Jesus Christ. Right now. If that's you, then I want you to pray this prayer with me right where you are. Lord, I've lived for myself, but now I give my life to you. I believe in my heart Jesus died for my sins and that he was raised from the dead and that now he rules over all. I confess him now as my only Lord and my only Savior. 